This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Derek Dorch of the Diversa Group, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Now your host, Derek T. Dorch. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. George on Federal News Network. Thank you for joining us today. Today we're going to be talking about an interesting topic. We've been talking before in previous shows about artificial intelligence. We've been talking about the Department of Defense investing heavily in this technology in terms of artificial intelligence, autonomous weapons. And now we're going to be talking about this in the dynamic of the d- deterrence. There's a report that came out from RAND. Uh, RAND is a think tank that does a lot of work for DOD, for the Department of Defense. But they had an article or a research paper about the deterrence in the age of thinking machines. And so we'll be talking about this today. We have on the line with us Yuna Wong. She's a policy researcher at RAND, and you can find him at RAND.org. But she and her colleagues wrote a report about this deterrence in the age of thinking machines. Yuna, thank you for joining me on Fed Access. Thank you so much for having me. Let me ask a quick question. What inspired you and your colleagues to really kind of focus in on this different area? I know that AI and I I know there are billions of dollars I talked about in terms of research dollars for the Department of Defense and maybe the intel community about AI. But what inspired this report for you guys to kind of say, listen, we need to focus on this area? So about four or five years ago, I had the opportunity to work on a couple of projects where the question was, what might operating concepts look like if the U.S. military were to incorporate AI in autonomous systems, and, you know, and what would that look like? And then I start, we started thinking, like, hmm, has anyone looked at the question of deterrence and escalation, right? So if the attractiveness of some of these systems are they can make decisions at machine speeds, right, could you escalate things at machine speeds? And the other thing you can sort of notice already coming out is when U.S. drones are shot down, it's not the same as when U.S. pilots are killed mm-hmm. or when U.S. pilots are you know, held captive. So this whole really interesting question of another advantage of these systems is you, if you take you know, humans out, you're not risking human life. But then what does that do to deterrence, right? So we have U.S. forces abroad whose presence deters adversaries from attacking U.S. allies. But would it be the same if they were just maybe destroying some machines? Right. Yes, yes. So also RAND has a yearly sort of competition for new ideas where they're looking for ideas that they're, they're, they want to fund, um, ideas that they think that people need to be thinking about but haven't maybe got around to asking the questions yet. We were working on it a couple of years ago and glad to see that we uh, finally have it out. How real is AI in terms of our defense industry and how real is it in terms of also maybe our competitor nations, the Chinas, the Russian, everything else? Is this a real life scenario that people are very diligently working on these kind of technologies and implementing them in the defense market? I think in the past few years, you have really seen countries like the United States and China, you know, signaling that they're investing a lot in um, applying AI and autonomous systems to the military. A little bit more under the radar is all the work the U.S. allies are doing as well on this front. And another fascinating thing is they have different philosophies of use, which have implications for sort of interoperability and cooperation with our allies later. But it's a whole different subject. But I will point out that none of this is really new. Recently, I was looking through a 1983 report by, I think, National Research Council that was making recommendations to the U.S. Army, right, um, in 1983 about where it should invest in uh, robots and AI for the Army. 
So wow. it's also interesting to go back in time and say um, we're sort of still trying to get to that future, and it's really fascinating that we, we keep returning to it. And then I think for people who are familiar right, with the, the future combat systems for the Army was another attempt to really look at uh, bringing robots for, the, for, the future, for future warfare. Sure, sure, sure. You know, as we think about this dynamic and we think about kind of AI, a lot of people get concerned, is this going to take over human beings uh, in either a defense environment or maybe either other jobs? I mean, do we see that taking place or do we see kind of the human being control scenario being even more important with the artificial intelligence scenario kind of being implemented within these different environments, within the defense environments or other government agencies? I mean, what what are your findings as, as it relates to this kind of stuff in terms of the human being and AI? So um, others are definitely more expert in, than I am on the research about that question. Um, it seems to me that it has really captured people's imaginations. When Rand released the report and they tweeted it out, we got responses that said, hashtag, you know, killer robots, and then tweets saying that our report proved that millions would die because of this, which I don't know that that really is, um, proves anything about that. But people really do respond. It is such an emotional issue. Mm-hmm. And we have had some very high profile events that capture the public imagination, right? Especially with um, AlphaGo defeating humans in, right. in the game of Go. But if you look back at, um, you know, Gary Kasparov and IBM Deep Blue being the first to beat a human chess champion, actually the same fears and sort of emotions all surface. So it's been really fascinating to me if you just go on YouTube and you watch the trailers for the documentaries of both events, just the same themes coming up. So it's always interesting to ask, well, why didn't we get to that future before, Mm. right? What is it that we're responding to? What is it that's different this time? And I know, again, a lot of people have done much more thinking and research than I have about the broad implications for the economy. But, you know, maybe these things don't happen as quickly or as completely as maybe people, you know, the gut reaction seems to predict. Right. You know, you mentioned about deterrence and you mentioned about is there a deterrence when maybe just weapons are killing weapons or robots are killing robots. And I know you guys talked about kind of the security dilemma or in, and then stability and instability. And that part of the report, what were you guys looking at in terms of the deterrence concepts? I mean, have we found that this will not create a deterrence about kind of people, you know, kind of robots just killing robots? Or is there going to be something else that comes out of this? What did you guys kind of come up with in this area right here? Yeah, so we based a lot of our insights based on a war game that we did mm-hmm. uh, involving the United States, China, Japan, South Korea, and North Korea in a future where there was AI and autonomous systems throughout the militaries in the region. And we wanted to do an unclassified sort of public thing so that it could let people have a sort of synthetic history about a possible future with this. And then one of the things we found in our war game was that there was inadvertent escalation with machines, right? That there was a point where humans didn't intend for it to go escalate to the next level, but it happened because they, you know, people were, um, you know, setting machines on auto to signal resolve, and then something right. else happened that they didn't anticipate. So there, we wanted to say that that is a possibility. On the whole thing of deterrence, one of the our colleagues who played in the game said. Um, he hadn't believed us that there could be a future where there's sort of low-level ongoing conflict between machines hmm. until he saw it in our war game. 
much of the game happened with just machines sort of taking out other machines. And then we had human casualties, and that really raised sort of the level of tension at that point. But another one of our colleagues made the comment that in the future, we could just be in a case where, you know, another unmanned system got shot down. What am I going to order for Starbucks? And it's sort of just that that level because it's so background. Right, right, right. You know, I mean, as we think about this kind of stuff, and that that becomes a tad bit concerning because, as you mentioned, you could have a war going on between machines that then could escalate and then kind of dive itself over into a human environment. What would stop something like that from happening? Is is that the dynamic of kind of having a little bit more of a human control scenario? Or do we have to have a kill switch in certain areas in terms of these machines of, of, of that kind of sort? I mean, what would prevent? Because if, if, if the machines are being taught to make sure that you win at all costs, right, or that you there's an indicator and warning going on. And so, therefore, you defeat that kind of warning or defeat that kind of threat. What would end up stopping a machine from going out full blast? And then kind of kind of taking control and then really kind of working to eliminate those threats where it, where it also may go beyond just killing the machine and then it goes into killing humans. Yeah. So this is a, a question that we are really hoping people do more thinking about. And we really wanted to raise how important a question that is because we have policy about human in the loop and other things. Uh, but we found some very interesting dynamics in our war game. So, for example, um, we tried to sort of look at different philosophies of use uh, with the unmanned systems and things. So the United States has a policy of human in the loop, right, that the human mm-hmm. will always be sort of either monitoring the machine or making the decisions. So now we can talk later about sort of when humans – Right, or get distracted or tired or bored, as we see in you know the test, this all this again YouTube video footage of people sleeping in their Teslas while the Tesla is sort of on autopilot. Again, in the Uber self-driving car fatality, the human was sort of watching her phone, video on her phone, rather than you know uh, paying attention to the road. But aside from that, like we had, so we had the United States and Japan in the war game with sort of human in the loop decision-making, which we thought would slow down sort of inadvertent escalation and unmanned systems, which we thought would sort of decrease the um, the consequences of like miscalculation, right? You miscalculate, mm-hmm. okay, like you lose your system, but you don't, no one gets killed. On the other hand, we thought it would be interesting to create a sort of, you know, in this future, right, sort of advanced Chinese forces that had more machine-oriented decision-making but for various reasons, more humans on their platforms, right? For those of you who are familiar, I think there was a little bit of writing in the Chinese military about the concept of the singularity. So they have military thinkers there who think that the speed of warfare will become so fast that humans actually won't be able to keep up. Mm. So that's a future that's more consistent with, hey, it's going to be so fast on the battlefield that you have to have machines control things because humans can't keep up. And what we saw sort of a few times in this war game that was so fascinating to me was you had the U.S. and the Japanese keep backing off because they did not want to kill Chinese personnel on the Chinese manned platforms that were sort of being more uh, – the decision-making that was more machine in that case. So Thomas Schelling, a uh, you know, famous game theorist, uh, he won the Nobel Prize for Game Theory, and he was an early uh, leader in sort of these crisis gaming for nuclear deterrence. 
And one of the things he talks about is a game of chicken. Like in a game of chicken, Mm -hmm. you know, two cars are driving towards each other to see who will swerve first. And the person who takes the steering wheel out and throws it out of the car, right, the other side will see that and will swerve because that person, you know, can't swerve anymore. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we sort of, it, it sort of seemed to recreate that where the U.S. and Japanese side with, you know, humans making the decisions, so um, they had the chance to de-escalate, and then they have uh, mostly unmanned systems, like, kept swerving because they did not want to escalate the situation by killing Chinese. They kept giving the Chinese sort of off-ramps. There was a point in the war game where they actually did uh, destroy a Chinese sub with, that was a man, so, so we had uh, Chinese forces who were killed. And then in the game, they decided not to publicize that uh, so that to give the Chinese an off-ramp, because the, the, so you see the onus was on the U.S. and the sure. Japanese, because with more humans in the loop, to de-escalate. And so that was a really interesting finding. Wow, wow. You know, we got to take a quick break, um, uh, Yuna. Um, when we come back, I want to keep on talking about this dynamic. You kind of mentioned about the whole kind of decision-making and our machines kind of moving so quick that we won't have the decision-making capability as humans to really kind of get into that mix while they're, while they're making machines. I want to kind of go into that a little bit deeper and then go into your report a little bit more. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about artificial intelligence and the deterrence in the age of thinking machines. We've got Yuna Wong. She's one of the policy researchers who was one of leading this report right here, and she's giving us a breakdown of what's going on. We'll be right back after this break. You listen to Fed Access on Federal News Network. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. George on the Federal News Network. Thank you for joining us. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about a number of important issues that's going on. Our Department of Defense is putting a mass amount of resources into the research of artificial intelligence, of almost at the, at the scope of maybe uh, analysts will say that $25 billion is needed. There was another report that came out previously uh, earlier this year that says $25 billion is needed annually for artificial intelligence in order for us to kind of keep up with maybe the Chinese and the Russians and everything else. If we put that kind of money into these resources, what are the consequences of us building a very, very strong, almost autonomous force? We're talking about that today. We're talking to uh, a policy researcher from RAM, Yuna Wong, and they wrote uh, The Deterrence of the Age of Thinking Machines, a, a really, really interesting report that you can find on the RAM website at RAM.org. But they really kind of broke down artificial intelligence and the, and the implications of thinking machines making decisions about war and other kind of factors. You know, you know, uh, we were kind of talking about the whole situation about kind of the human in this in this whole thing. When you think about kind of decision, I know you guys focusing on decision making. What did you find? I mean, did you find that that was a real, real concern about the kind of the dynamic of artificial intelligence machines being able to move so quick that humans couldn't, you know, pipeline themselves into it and slow things down? Uh, what What's the consequences of that right there? Well, so um, this report as- assumes as our, our starting point that, p- that militaries around the world, if they find operational advantage, will use these systems and that these systems will be developed. Mm-hmm. Whether or not we can get there is a whole other question. But we said, if you got there, like, what are some of the things you need to be thinking about? Sure. Some people have said, are we, aren't we being sort of overly alarmist? And I definitely get their point. Uh, the only thing I, I would 
what I say to that is we absolutely can and should avoid a future where the first time we're thinking about escalation and, and of, of, of systems uh, you know, with machines, right, is when they're fielded and it's the first time we're in a crisis. So we can absolutely avoid that future. Um, it's been very interesting briefing this to different audiences. They've been extremely engaged and with lots of questions. I think one of the questions was actually, isn't uncertainty about what the other AI is going to do? What won't that slow it down? And, you know, and it might. So in the war game, we had one point where the U.S. player uh, said he had no idea what the Chinese AI was doing, and he's going to have to figure out what was going on. So that was a point of confusion, but maybe that will slow things down. Actually, in the war game, another point that we do make in our report was just because of the physical distances, that area is very large. It, it slowed things down because you just to get to different places just took you a long time. So that's another thing that could sort of de-escalate it. And another thing is if we go down a path where we deliberately think about how do we manage um, the escalatory potential of some of these systems or concepts, right? So one of the things we sort of recommend is as we develop these systems, as we develop these operational concepts, are some of them inherently more escalatory, even as they offer operational advantage? And what is it that we want to do? And I think another thing that's come up when I brief this report is, well, what about essentially cooperation with adversaries and allies, right? If there is a system that some sort of uh, machine behavior that we don't understand what's going on, like, would there be a benefit of a doubt? And I think if we're in a world where we, over time, develop uh, norms and understanding and better understanding of our own systems, how they behave, the other side systems, we could get to a, a world where... Um, we can better manage that escalation because we have experiences with the our systems and the other side systems, and we have experience with that. In our war game, we set it to a sort of more dangerous situation where people had these systems, but not a lot of familiarity with actually using them, mm. but a high level of trust. Okay. So we thought that was kind of the most dangerous combination. So, so over-trust in the machine. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then trusting that these things work. But in the two years since we ran this war game, you could see at a sort of societal level, I think a lot more, um, was it people now a little bit more wary about AI, that society has maybe had some more negative experiences, mm-hmm. concern about deep fakes, concern about misinformation. So if you're going down that path where the societal experience is more negative, maybe you already have sort of set up more things to flag things in your systems, trust it less, or think of you know more explicitly think about those things. You know, I, I was reading through the report and I saw some of the insights you guys got, and it said that maybe manned systems may be better for deterrence than unmanned ones. Uh, you know, I mean, what what were you guys thinking about that? Is it, is is it really the dynamic of that the human against human, especially in the avoidance of maybe conflict or the avoidance against death? there'll be a little bit more of a higher stake. And so therefore um, we may say, listen, how do we, how do we stop this conflict before it gets to this point? I mean, what are you guys thoughts on that? Yeah. So that is a really important point in our report because we wanted to ask, okay, so you want to uh, reduce the risk to U.S. military personnel by replacing them with robots. Well, how do some of the allies feel about that, right? Mm-hmm. Do One of the reasons we have U.S. forces in South Korea and U.S. forces in Japan, right, is to assure those allies of U.S. security commitment and to signal to anyone else thinking about ha- attacking them that you attack them, you're going to kill U.S. forces. That's going to bring the United States into this conflict. But what if it's just robots? 
will they care? Will they be as deterred? So we had this conversation with our team as we were developing this war game. And in this case, the people who were in the game decided that South Korea and Japan were okay with the U.S. replacing U.S. personnel with robots and that those allies were also going down a path where they had autonomous systems in their military. But you could see that that might not always be true. Other Mm. allies may look at it and say, well, what do you mean you're pulling out U.S. troops and you're just leaving us with machines? We don't feel that that's the same level of security guarantee. So we don't think that that'll deter whatever adversary in the same way as actual human U.S. American lives being put at risk. So there is that question, and that's quite interesting. You know, I saw in the report that you guys did some kind of past uh, looking at the past, and I'm just reminded of different situations where maybe, um, you know, and even as even just recently we were kind of talking about the, the Iran situation and that airline that was brought down and the possibility that maybe an autonomous system identified it as maybe a fighter and then shot a missile to it or whatever the case is. Uh, we've had past mistakes of maybe autonomous systems doing certain things. What did you guys look at when it came to that kind of stuff? Yes, another thing we wanted to emphasize um, and try to make available to uh, readers who are not experts is that this idea of sort of autonomous systems in the military is not really new, mm-hmm. right? You have land mines, you have sea mines, you have torpedoes, you have, as you mentioned, the case of the, Vin- the Vincennes shooting down an Iranian airliner. And so we have a brief section of our report that just goes through some of those things. And we have... Um, you know, the phalanx system, which, you know, we had accidents with that that have killed uh, U.S. Uh, service personnel. And so those are all things that, you know, maybe could help us better understand some of these things that might be coming. Because in this sort of future world, right, if we're going to have more of those systems, right, and more complicated systems, you not only have to understand the other human, right, Mm-hmm. to signal and understand what they're trying to do. You have to understand your own machines, which I will have to point out is not necessarily trivial. So um, I had the chance to last year chair a special meeting on artificial intelligence and autonomy through the Military Operations Research Society. I'm not a technical expert on AI by any stretch of the imagination, but we were hoping that that event would help people who were have, you know, having to work on these issues, the action officers throughout DOD, a chance to ask people who actually were expert about some of these systems. And I remember one roboticist saying that she's considered an expert on her robot, but even she could not tell you all the behaviors it might exhibit. Mm. So that was very interesting. That's kind of scary. So when, and then <laughs> it kind of is, right? And then we had sort of person after person sort of asking um, roboticists, well, how much testing is enough? And they're, they're saying with autonomous systems, maybe there's no amount of testing is enough because no amount of testing can necessarily surface all the behaviors, especially if you're going to put them in novel situations where you had not necessarily thought about what they might do. So us understanding our own machines and making sure that the machines understand our intent is not necessarily a trivial thing. And then you add in the other side systems. And then another point that people have made when I briefed this out is different systems, it'll be very heterogeneous, like what level of control, what level of human control versus autonomous control different machines in different areas may have, right? So this gets very complicated. 
And you could almost imagine a situation where you're, you know, you could say, well, under normal times, right, this is going to be how we control our machines. But in crisis, right, when mm-hmm. you have to shorten the decision-making cycle, maybe there's more autonomy, right? Maybe in the in normal situations, we don't really risk the machine. But if it's a crisis, we're more willing to risk the machines. But, you know, the other side doesn't necessarily know that. They don't necessarily know that you have those different settings. They haven't been able to observe you in crisis before. They just maybe are predicting what you'll do based on normal steady-state conditions when there isn't a crisis. So that raises the question of, do we want to be more transparent about these things to our allies and our adversaries to reduce miscalculation? Wow. I want to take a. I want to get a little bit deeper into the report. We got to take a quick break, Young, and then when we come back. I want to go a little bit more. I know there's some things to talk about, kind of the human protection kind of dynamics in terms of AI and everything else. I want to kind of get into that in a couple other areas as we go forward. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about artificial intelligence in terms of our military, in terms of our defense capabilities, in terms of certain machines being used. And the deterrence factor of them, the deterrence in terms of the age of the thinking machine. Uh, this is not a new concept. This has been, as, as, as Jung has talked about, this has been around since the 80s, maybe even earlier than that. We, had, we do have autonomous systems in our military right now. But as this technology is growing, we have to think about are these machines getting to the point where they could escalate things in a way that would be very, very negative and have some major consequences? And how do we slow this down? What is the deterrence factor of this kind of stuff? We're talking about this on Fed Access right now. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch from Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. Thank you for joining us. If you just joined us, we've been having a very, very interesting conversation. We've been talking about artificial intelligence. This may be something that's on your mind. It may not be on your mind, but it should be. Uh, We have an age of thinking machines, and there's a report out from RAND called The Deterrence in the Age of Thinking Machines. You can either Google it or you can find it on the RAND website at RAND.org. We have one of the the policy researchers, Yuna Wong, on with us right now, and she's been breaking this report down. But it was really designed to give thinkers in the military, our our, our military leaders, some kind of uh, some research and some 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 tools to think about the consequences in terms of uh, artificial intelligence. There's a big uh, uh, request for investment in artificial intelligence within our defense systems. And so we have to make sure we know how to use these things and know about the consequences and know about the deterrence in the age of thinking machines. Uh, you, know, you know, we were just kind of talking and, and what kind of, you know, as, as and, and we kind of were talking about the dynamic of the human sometimes having empathy for the machines. And I think about kind of like our cars, right? We'll give our car a name. And then if we hit maybe a, a bump, we're like, oh, you know, we think our car is like hurting or something of that sort. Right. Um, Sometimes we get connected to devices um, almost as if they're like a pet or almost as if they're another human. Um, could that have consequences as well in terms of what's going on with the, our military members who may be thinking that the, 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 the maybe the artificial intelligence robot is suffering um, as they're maybe in battle or they're doing certain things? Yes, that's a, such a fascinating topic. And for this, I would point to the work done by P.W. Singer in his book, Wired for War. Mm-hmm. I think I read that book a few years back, and I was, again, just so fascinated. 
he talks about uh, examples in Iraq and Afghanistan of U.S. service per- personnel like really um, bonding with their uh, packbot, with their with their robot. It would come with a name. It would come with like a history, and they would want that one repaired. You know, not not a new robot, right. which raised the question of do people respond to robots as if they're other living beings in the environment? And P.W. Singer, uh, apologies to him if I'm misremembering the story in the book, but I believe if I, one of the stories was they were testing a robot that would go around set off landmines, right, with the idea that it would make it safer for the human. And I believe, in, according to the story, the colonel watching this stopped the test because uh, the colonel felt it was inhumane. So that raises a fascinating question, right? P.W. Singer raises the issue, do we prohibit humans from doing certain types of things to machines to avoid desensitizing the human to doing those types of things to other living and other living creatures? And that is a fascinating concept. And I think it's a great concept to think about because we oftentimes do bond with our technology. I think about our laptops or our phones or other things of that sort. We oftentimes have a bond with certain things that we have and we don't want to give those things up. So I think it's really a very, very fascinating concept to kind of go into. You know, you, you mentioned right here about the different mixes of, of human and artificial intelligence and artificial agents could affect the escalatory dynamics between two sides. What were you guys kind of talking about that when, when you kind of mentioned about this, this different mix between kind of the human and artificial agents? What, what was the concept behind that? Yeah, so this was um, in our war game. You had the United States and Japan with humans making mostly the decisions, but the physical presence being machine. So we said that would be a lower escalatory dynamic because the humans were making took longer to maybe think about things and a lower cost of miscalculation. And in this fictional world, the Chinese forces had you know, machines making the decisions, but humans on some of their systems. So we said that was a higher escalatory dynamic with a higher cost of miscalculation. And again, when you put those two together, right, is there the possibility that the, the, the side that has more humans in the decision-making process, is the onus always on them to de-escalate? And that, we thought, was a very interesting dynamic. And, you know, I think we should look at different combinations of those things, right? So, um, uh, you know, because of these dynamics about deterrence and miscalculation and the co- potential costs of that. Another thing that we did think about and sort of hypothesize about was how might machines misinterpret human attempts to signal? So, you know, if, if you know, humans try to signal to each other, right? So mm-hmm. if, if a conflict is escalating, sometimes, you know, one side may uh, be doing a lot of rhetoric. And, right, we, see, we saw this recently with the United States and Iran. But what if they don't actually want the conflict to escalate? Could they do things like pull back their forces from somewhere? Mm. Well, if, depending on how you said it, would your machine say, hey, this is, a, this is an improving operational situation for us and we should attack, right? So it mm. depends how aggressively have you set your machines because would the machines be even able to understand that sort of attempt by humans to signal to other humans that they don't want to increase the conflict. And if, if you haven't, right, that is a point where you could get sort of inadvertent escalation again. You know, it, it just reminds me because I, I think about I was just watching the documentary about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and as you mentioned about there's a number of different crises where humans were signaling each other, right, about either they kind of pull back a little bit or they kind of do this, that and the other to kind of signal we don't want this or, hey, stop or whatever the case is. Uh, it always it almost would seem as if we would need to teach our robots a great deal of history 
about various other conflicts in order maybe for them to understand certain things. Uh, are, are we at a point right now where uh, our, the artificial intelligence would have the capability? Or, or I mean, I, I know you're not a complete technical person in this concept, but at, in terms of the work you've been doing, in terms of your research, do we see thinking machines kind of having the capability to understand signals possibly or no? I, I think many of these systems are still really hypothetical. Okay. But I feel like the good I feel like the time to ask all the questions you've just asked mm-hmm. is as we're still developing our ideas and concepts for these things and not like after we've developed them and then somehow it didn't occur to us until later that these things might happen. Right. You know, you mentioned about kind of players putting their systems into different autonomous set- settings to res- to resolve a commitment or resolve a or during a conflict. What was going on with that? I mean, did different players do different things? I mean, was a person with maybe a more of a background in, in one area put their setting to to something different than another player? What was going on when it kind of came to that kind of work right there? So that was really interesting because you saw people in the war game, right, say, oh, we're going to put our systems on full auto to signal our resolve, right? And then what happened in this game was the, the United States and Japan were having joint exercises that were provoking the Chinese and then they set their um, air defenses, integrated air and missile defenses, on full auto. And in that point, um, the North Koreans chose that time to have a missile launch. And then so the right, the system on full auto uh, sort of shot into North Korea, which the Americans and the Japanese did not intend to do. Um, but which you know, right, that was a point of inadvertent escalation, right, where you hadn't thought about hey, the North Koreans might just do something we hadn't expected. And then because we were trying to signal to the Chinese, but like this happened. And, but it also raises questions about, and we've gotten this question, this question that was also really interesting. Like, how would you know that someone actually had their system on full auto? And, mm-hmm. and the answer is, you probably wouldn't actually know, right? Like, is there a statement that we're gone full auto and if you attack us, we're not responsible for the consequences? Like, is that a credible threat? It gets back to all of this, you know, credible threat and resolve and signaling, which is still still something that I think only humans can understand about each other at this point. Right, right, right. You know, we got to take a quick break, Yuna. When we come back, I want to kind of hear your recommendations to our strategic leaders uh, when it comes to uh, artificial intelligence. I know you guys kind of came up with a couple strategic uh, recommendations that you think that people should be thinking about as we go forward. And I want to kind of go into that as when we come back. We're talking about artificial intelligence. We're talking about artificial intelligence in the age of defense. We're talking about how artificial intelligence uh, uh, you know, can be used as deterrence and if it can be used as a deterrence. And there's an article, a research report that came out from RAND that Yuna Wong and her team worked on called the deterrence in the age of thinking machines. You can find it on rand.org or you can find it, just do a Google search for it and it'll come up. But it's a very, very interesting report about uh, artificial intelligence and autonomous systems with our militaries right now. And can they be used as deterrence or will some of our systems go into a more of an escal- escal- escalation with each other and maybe have many wars going on that may have an impact and consequences in terms of human lives or maybe a, a full-scale war. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. If you just joined us, we've been talking about a very, very intriguing topic, 
artificial intelligence. And and if you've been following the defense news lately, there's been really big talk about the investment in terms of artificial intelligence, about the research that needs to go into this kind of stuff, and us building more of a kind of autonomous kind of network of robots or machines that really support our military, maybe autonomous weapons. These things are already out there in a, in a degree where we see kind of drones. We've seen kind of robots come up. We've seen kind of missile systems that have autonomous features. But there's even more of an investment going on within the Department of Defense and other areas through DARPA and other areas about investing in this kind of technology. But what are the consequences of that? Would these machines be a deterrent if both us and China or us and Russia have the same machines and they're battling against each other? This is being investigated right now from the people from RAN. And we've got one of their top researchers on the line with us, Yuna Wong, who has researched this, pro, this, this kind of issue right here. And the deterrence of the age of thinking machines, a report that they just came out with that you should kind of read and take a look at. And this is a report that should go to our strategic leaders. You know, Yuna, what recommendations, I mean, given what you found in kind of the war gaming, given what you found in your research and everything else, you kind of brought up some serious concerns. What recommendations do you have to our leaders in terms of thinking about artificial intelligence in the future as we start thinking about these weapons being developed? I think one of the things we definitely would encourage is just more work on this topic. So I think, you know, people talk about um, arms control or uh, trying to regulate these things. But, you know, given the diffusion of artificial, artificial intelligence and autonomous systems, I just don't think that's possible. I think we should assume that they're going to exist and that they should be accounted for in our policy. We have serious thinking about nuclear deterrence and perhaps uh, additional thinking uh, should, would be good up, about deterrence and escalation with these systems. I would also, uh, we would also recommend that we evaluate the, uh, the escalatory potential of new systems and new operating concepts as we're designing them, as we're testing them. And this could cover everything from the data that's used to train the algorithm to the sort of uh, testing that's done to ways that are, its systems and concepts are being incorporated with other humans and other machines to sort of avoid the possibility of inadvertent con- escalation. So again, there may be things that are operationally very advantageous, but so escalatory that maybe it's not what we really want to do in terms of fielding them. We would uh, recommend people uh, war game additional scenarios. So when we can't necessarily uh, don't have a history to look at, right? War gaming is a way to potentially explore a space. And we just looked at one war game, and that raised a whole host of questions for us. You just saw in our discussion what one war game raised in terms of questions and concerns and areas for uh, additional work. And I would also recommend further study of adversary and allied autonomous systems and philosophies of use just so that we have better understanding of um, sort of everyone's systems and how everyone else perceives things. And also we might consider sort of greater transparency with adversaries and allies, right, Mm. which is not a natural thing to do, right? right? We don't necessarily want – we don't have an instinct to go share like our algorithms or things with uh, people that we consider adversaries. But, you know, we had – you know, during the Cold War, there are times that we had sort of – technical uh, verification or not not to say that it has to be like nuclear uh, systems because they're very different but like greater transparency just to help the other side better understand what we were doing again to avoid miscalculation and inadvertent escalation do you think that that you know you we, we you mentioned kind of the nuclear dynamic and i think that's important because there were a lot of kind of uh you know kind of fail stops couldn't put in place 
with kind of the nuclear deterrent scenario. Are we, especially with new technology evolving, with kind of AI evolving, should the kind of the nuclear benchmark be used as kind of maybe the format to kind of say, listen, we didn't want to have an all full scale nuclear war with Russia, things of that sort. So we put these things in place to prevent these kind of actions kind of going on. Should we be doing the same thing with autonomous or AI type weapons? I mean, should we be thinking the same kind of concept that, that was thought about with, with nuclear war? I think we could learn some things from what we did during the Cold War with nuclear deterrence. And I think better, you know, actions to sort of reduce potential miscalculation, I think, are always good. I think, you know, some people, again, feel that we're being overly alarmist. Uh, some people assume that we can get to the future where we are sort of we have familiarity with other people's signaling and other people's systems so that we can manage the escalation. I think that will take some experience with as we you know as we watch each other as we field these systems again adversaries and allies at better understanding but I think the your your point about what can we take away from that and I think what can we can take away from nuclear deterrence is if you sort of are deliberately try to work with um, other people to reduce miscalculation and inadvertent escalation, I think you can make progress. You know, and, and you and you had a chance to kind of, you know, get into the military areas and everything else. Do you think that we're moving too fast and our, and our either our political leaders or our strategic leaders are maybe moving too fast and kind of saying, listen, we've got to have these weapons. You know, sometimes we move very, very quickly in terms of development of certain things. And you're kind of saying, listen, you know what, slow down and think about some things. Are we, are we moving too fast? Are we making the threat bigger than it needs to be? Um, I know you said, I know you said that, Hey, you guys may be seen as alarmists, but I think you're really right on point. And, and so it, it kind of brings to my question is, um, you know, I know we need to compete. I know we need to kind of stay on top and have a military advantage, but it is scary what you kind of bring up that, you know, maybe people are not thinking about these things as we're developing weapons. And are we moving too fast to try to create something that could harm, you know, that could be very, very consequential in the future? Well, I, I think the thing that makes me feel that um, we're not moving too fast is I, I think peop, there's a there's a real possibility that people are overestimating what some of these technologies will be able to deliver. Mm, okay. Again, if you look at the past, if you look at the past, like why aren't we in that future already? If there have been sort of multiple attempts, right? Like people keep wanting to get to that future. So I think the technological hurdles in many cases may be greater than what we are able to envision. Mm. That's not to say that it might, it could still happen, right? But maybe that future is farther away than we think, and we do have more time to take all these considerations into account. Yuna, thank you so much for providing some insight. This has been very, very helpful, and I hope people read this report. It's the Deterrence in the Age of Thinking Machines. You can find it on the RAND website. Uh, Yuna Wong is one of the policy researchers at, at, at RAND who's been doing some excellent research with her team, uh, uh, working on these different issues and really kind of helping us think about some different things strategically before we get to the point of these weapons being developed. Let's think about them ahead of time, but while the weapons are being developed before and, and rather than waiting to after the weapons develop and then got to think about a whole new algorithm to deal with these uh, uh, situations and develop solutions for these situations. Thank you so much, Yuna, for being on Fed Access, and thank you for this conversation. This has been insightful and also scary at the same time. <laughs> 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 Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 1 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 